guys. Thank you so much for tuning in through iTunes, through Spotify. If you're watching here on YouTube, please click that subscribe button as you see it. Go up and down there in the bottom right-hand corner of the screen. And don't forget to click the bell for continued notifications. John Gill on how we know the scriptures are authoritative and indeed have their source in divine origin or at least know that they are of divine origin that is the uh, that's the subject matter for for today um one of the points that i want to make here and and i've done this with with james usher i did it on a uh, i used james usher as a contextual figure for the language of the Westminster Confession of Faith and, by extension, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Um, and that video that I did on that issue, uh, using James Usher to basically say, no, Chapter 1, Article 4 of the Second London Confession is not articulating a form of presuppositionalism. And I do that in, can we find presuppositionalism in the... 1689. Uh, that's a video I did about a month ago, so it's it's relatively toward the top if you go to the videos on YouTube. And I want to do somewhat of the same thing here using another contextual figure, but on the other side of the framing of the confession, which is John Gill living in the 18th century, early to mid-18th century. And I think what becomes clear, I, I mean, if, if you take someone like Usher, and it's not just Usher, it's several figures in the 17th century, um, you, but if you take someone like Usher, who lived on the, you know, uh, who lived prior to the framing of the Westminster Confession and the and the uh, and the Second London and all of that, um, and then you look at figures, you know, following thereafter, the framing of the Second London and so on. You can you can begin to see some consistencies until you get to 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 several figures until you get to until you really get to the period of the 18th century and the height of Reformed Orthodoxy begins to really diminish at that point, largely because of the encroachment of um, rationalism and and um, uh, and so on. You know you have you have Cartesianism and and things like that that are that are developing ferociously at that period of time. And then, of course, the Enlightenment um, is, the, is the elephant in the room in the 18th century. Um, but you still have some gems in the 18th century. Gill is one of those gems. Um, I think John Brown of Haddington might be another one, um, because I, th I believe he will fit that uh, um, period of time, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, he's 18th century. Early to early to late, really eighteenth century figure John Brown of Haddington, uh, excellent, excellent theologian as well. Um, but I want to talk about John Gill's evidence, the evidence or the or or what tells us that what we hold in our hands, which we call the scriptures. What is it that tells us, such that we can ascend to this, uh, this claim in good conscience? What is it that tells us that what we hold in our hands 
is the word of God and is therefore to be accepted because it's bearing God's authority? That's the question. The question is not whether or not scripture is authoritative and should be received. Once you get to that point, right, the question is, how do we know that scripture is the word of God and thus bears God's authority? Now, the second you go on answering that question, um, you know, by means of saying something like, well, there's this mark and that mark and this, you know, point of evidence and, and that, you know, proof or something like that. Um, you depart from what it means to presuppose the thing you are then seeking evidence for. So you, if, if it's evidenced, it's not presupposed. Um, can you evidence, like to someone else, what you already presuppose? Sure, but that's not what we're talking about. I'm talking about something like Scripture. The claim often is you must presuppose the Scriptures, and thus there is no reasoning that goes into receiving the text of Scripture as the authoritative Word of God, because it must be presupposed. It just must be received and presupposed blindly. And really, on that basis, you should be able to go to the apocryphal text, whether it's the New Testament, apocryphal text, the gospel, the apocryphal gospel accounts, or the intertestamental period stuff, and you should be able to say, well, some of this stuff claims to be the Word of God, so we should just accept it. No, there has to be something that distinguishes true canon from false canon. Right? There, has to be, there has to be something that we can look at. We can say, yeah, that's the word of God. That's not the word of God. But if that's the case, we may be presupposing that there is a word of God, but we're not presupposing necessarily the content of the word of God. We're asking the question, what is the content? And then we're looking at certain marks or, or lines of evidence that events to us that this is either the word of God or not the word of God. And so you look at someone like James Usher, which I, I did the video of uh, about a month ago on, um, and you look at somebody like John Gill and you have several proofs, or not proofs, I wouldn't call them proofs, I'd, I'd say lines of evidence that, or lines of inquiry, the outcomes of which would seem to indicate that this is the word of God we're dealing with. In, Gill's, in Usher's case, it's like 25 or something like that. I want to say it's like 25 lines of evidence. Gill only goes through about eight, right? Um, and, and that's just in the relevant section. There may be other places where he says other things um, that would, you know, um, that would bolster his point. But in, in the section on his demonstration of how we know the Word of God is the Word of God, uh, there are about eight lines of evidence there. Um, and so I'm just going to, I'm going to list these lines of evidence. I actually have, there are eight official lines of evidence there, 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 but there's technically nine. And the ninth one, he doesn't list as a number, but he says there's one more. And then he goes on and, and writes about it as well. So we'll say there, there are nine lines of evidence in, in John Gill for how we can know that the word of God is the word of God. In other words, we don't just, we don't just grab this book and and before we even open it we don't we don't just say well yep this is the word of god i'm going to blindly receive it like if that was the case you know what what why not just do the same thing with the book of mormon 
or the Quran or something like that. How do we know that what we hold in our hands is the Word of God? And that's the, that's the, uh, that's the subject matter here. But remember, the second you go about asking for evidence for the thing that you're, the, the, for the thing in question, the scriptures in this case, you're not presupposing them. All right, you're not presupposing them. You are evidencing them. All right, you're, 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 you're proofing them. All right, so in, in, in Gill's case, like I said, there's eight formal evidences and, um, and one kind of informal one at the end. Uh, and they're, I'm just going to list them out and then we'll talk about them. So first, there's the subject matter of the scriptures. That's an internal testimony for why we should believe that the scriptures are the scriptures. Secondly, there's the style and manner in which the scriptures are written. So it's a stylistic argument, which is another internal testimony. Thirdly is the penmen and writers of the scriptures, the character of them, the um, kind of the, um, the circumstances that did not lend themselves to these men making something like this up because they weren't particularly educated. So things like that. Um, four, the effects produced by scripture in and upon men. So we can like look and see what the text of scripture has wrought in and through the world. That's an external testimony because now we're looking at that which scripture has actually produced in the world experientially and historically. So he appeals to an external proof there in the fourth. Then you have fifth, miracles, which is an internal testimony. Um, it's an internal testimony because miracles are recorded in the scriptures Yet, nevertheless, we have those miracles recorded in the scriptures, and they're testifying to the validity of the words of prophets, even the words of Jesus himself. So there are miracles, and that's an internal testimony, uh, which you can only ascend to at that point when you, when you believe that the scriptures are generally reliable. Um, sixth, there, there's a circumstantial argument, which is another external testimony that Gill appeals to, which is the hatred and opposition of men and the enmity of the devils toward these scriptures throughout history. Again, you're looking at history and you're seeing this is the opposition of uh, against the scriptures. Seventhly, the judgment of God on those who despise the scriptures, which is an external testimony. There he appeals to the Apocrypha, even. Uh, he appeals to First and Second Maccabees. He appeals to Josephus and uh, Josephus' account of Diocletian in particular and how when Diocletian tried to squash Christianity but realized that he couldn't, um, he eventually, I want, I want to say that Gill records it from Josephus that, that he eventually um, took his own life or something like that. So let me see. Well, we'll get there here in a minute. We'll deal with that here in a moment. Eighth, the antiquity and the continuance of the scriptures. So that's another, that's actually an external proof as well, because you're looking at, you're looking at the, the, the prolonged lifespan of what we have and understand to be scripture. And then ninthly, which is the informal one, because he doesn't really number it. He just says, there's, there's one more and here it is. The agreement of heathen authors with the scriptures. Um, and, and he lists things that really are historically based that the heathen authors agree with the Bible on. For example, the flood, the Tower of Babel, 
and so on and so forth. So he's saying there, there's, there is, uh, there's dual recognition of these historical claims that the Bible makes, both in the Bible itself and in heathen writers that are writing about the same things. And, um, you know, a, a, a simple, uh, perhaps a simple um, confirmation along that line would be uh, like, Josephus, the prophecies concerning the destruction of the temple in the scriptures, and then Josephus recording the destruction of the temple historically. So that would be probably another uh, example of that. Gill doesn't give that as an example, I don't, I don't believe, but he, he, um, um, but I, but I think that's, that's where he's, that's what he's getting at. So, um, so these are eight formal, one informal argument um, concerning the Holy Scriptures, and I'm trying to figure out, okay, there we go. I was trying to find my place. See, I don't have, I don't have Gill's body of, um, doctrinal and practical divinity electronically. I have it, I have this, here, I'll show it to you. I have a hard copy, I have the hard copy set of all of Gill's works given to me by one of our deacons. I'm so blessed by this work. I've been so blessed by this work. I mean, over the last uh, few years, especially um, having it. I read Gill before that point, but um, but after actually receiving uh, that very kind gift, um, I've I've read even more. So um, these are the 1977 uh, volumes printing here that is done by Primitive Baptist Library. Um, if you ever have an opportunity to get your hands on, on that set, it's an incredible set. The, our church library has another set. It's a, it's a red, uh, hardback bound, um, set that, um, we don't have a complete of it. I think one or two volumes are missing, but our church also has, has that set. So, um, let's get into some of these, some of these arguments. Now notice that as I listed these out, I said there were internal testimonies and there are external testimonies. There are things that bear witness of Scripture's scripturalness within Scripture itself. Um, and then there are things that stand outside of Scripture, the effects of Scripture upon the world, for example, that also testify to Scripture's scripturalness. That's what I mean by internal and external testimonies. But, and, and you know, sometimes what, you'll, what you will hear is you will hear like, well, Scripture proves itself, and, and by the fact that Scripture proves itself, we are to uh, acknowledge that Scripture must be presupposed. Regardless of whether or not something evidences a quality about itself, or whether or not that quality is witnessed from something external to it, doesn't matter. Uh, for the purposes of, of answering the question of, of if something's being presupposed. Um, sorry, the light's coming in. I, I should have, it's a lot of light there. The sun's setting and, and uh, I've got this window here. Love, I love the window. It's, it's, it's my favorite, one of my favorite windows but in the house, but uh, should have closed the blinds. Anyway, so you have, you have uh, internal and external testimonies. And regardless of whether or not the testimony or the evidence is internal or external, if you're evidencing a thing, it cannot be presupposed. 
right? It, not in any meaningful sense. It's Again, it's one thing if you're a Christian, you've already ascended to the truth, the inspiration and inerrancy of the Holy Scriptures, and therefore you, you presuppose its truth, and, um, and, and you use evidences after that to, you know, reason with unbelievers or something like that. Okay, we, we've got that. You're, you're a Christian, so of course you're presupposing the Scriptures already as a Christian. It's not as if every time you come to the Scriptures, you have to have a proof that they are indeed the Scriptures, right? So that's not what I'm talking about here. But if you, if you have just approached the Bible, you've never opened the Bible before in your life, someone gives you a Bible, right? Or maybe, or not, let's not even, let's not even talk about an unbeliever. Let's talk about a believer who's wavering in doubt. And you're, and, and you have the Bible and you're, you, perhaps some doubt has entered your mind or you've encountered someone who has, um, who has challenged your commitment to the scriptures. And so now you you're, you're, you're wondering, you know, is this all the word of God? Is it, is it plenary, right? Is, is all 66 books of the Protestant canon uh, verbally and plenarily inspired by God? Um, and, and now, you're, now you, you, you um, could be helped at that point by some evidences that would help your faith, right? So you're, you're already believing that this is the word of God, but some doubt has entered into your mind and, and now you're not so sure about some places or some, some things or something like that, right? That's where these evidences come in handy. Um, you're, you're not just telling that person who's wavering in doubt, presuppose the Bible. It's all the word of God. Don't even ask that question. Don't even, don't even raise it. Don't even talk about it. Well, no, no, you're not going to say that. You're going to, you're, you're, you're hopefully going to approach that person in a posture of humility and in a desire to see that person actually come along uh, intellectually and faithfully as God is pleased to do his work through the communion of saints, as saints are able to come alongside that, that brother or sister and, and help them understand that this is indeed the, the word of God. And these are some of the, the evidences or the proofs that you could offer uh, such a person. So the first one is the subject matter of the scriptures. The subject matter of the scriptures events that the scriptures are the scriptures. Uh, so this is an internal testimony. And within this internal testimony, Gill says things like, Nothing in the scriptures are unworthy of God. So one of the ways we know that the scriptures, by the way, this is in the chapter of the Holy Scriptures in his body of doctrinal practical divinity. So I, I would give you a page number. In fact, I'll go ahead and give you a page number here in this uh, 77 edition, but just know that it's going to be different if you get an electronic version. But in this edition, it starts on page 8. Um... And so very early on, it's kind of the prolegomena of, of, his, his, of his body of, of doctrinal practical divinity. So of the Holy Scriptures begins on page 8. It goes all the way to, this is a dual column volume, so it, it packs a lot on each page. But it goes from page 8 to page 18. All right, so about 10 pages long. And... Um, and so if you have that edition, that's where you can find what I'm, what I'm going off here. Uh, you, there, you can check my work. Or if you don't have that edition and you have an electronic version or you're looking at a PDF online 
or you uh, have just a different print copy, then just know that this is the chapter of the Holy Scriptures. should be relatively easy to find. So when he's talking about the subject matter of them, what's he mean by that? Well, he's saying that nothing in the Scriptures, nothing in what we profess to be the Scriptures, are unworthy of God. Therefore, we know that this is from God, right? So, the, so you can't go about saying that the Scriptures are, are unworthy of God or are discontinuous uh, of God's nature or character because the Scriptures just bear the marks of divinity. Now, interestingly about that, you have to have some notion of divinity, in order to in order to make that kind of judgment about the scriptures you can't you wouldn't be able to come to the scriptures and say well these scriptures are very worthy of god worthy of the creator of the universe um whose godhead is revealed through the things that have been made uh without knowing something of the god you're comparing the scriptures with right um and so you know gill is gill is Gill is saying here that you can look at the text of Scripture and you can realize that nothing in the text of Scripture is unworthy of God, right? Is nothing, there's nothing discontinuous in the Scriptures from the nature of God himself. The second thing that he says is that the, that the Scriptures themselves bear out holiness. They are holy. Scripture is holy. And so this is an ethical claim about Scripture that tells us that this is, again, it's continuous with, or it's, I say continuous, I don't, I don't like that word, it's, it's um, consistent with the nature of God. It's holy, uh, like God is holy. And then he says, well, the, the Holy Spirit dictated this to holy men, and he looks at the character of, of men, and he does this again in the third proof, but we're still in the first one, where he's looking at the subject matter. He says, things not known by reason alone, the creation of the world, the origin of mankind, creatio ex nihilo, creation ex nihilo, or creation out of nothing, those things are revealed in the scripture. And so that tells us that there's something supra-rational going on here, which is something that that God is, right? God is is beyond comprehension, and here you have something beyond the scope of our reasoning ability being delivered to us in the Holy Scriptures. Um, and so that is another mark in favor of this being of divine origin. Um, now he says the creation of the world is not known through creation. It's not known by reason. It's not known by the light of reason. It's known by Scripture alone. This is and this is the exact language of Thomas Aquinas. Um, now, what they're not saying is he's not saying that we can't know that the world had a beginning. We can know that the world had a beginning, but we cannot know, apart from Scripture, that the world was created out of nothing. For example, um, we can't. We can't know that, right? That's why a lot of uh, a lot of pagans without the scriptures have concluded things like pantheism, where the world and God are one, or panentheism, where the world is an emanation of the divine being, or something like that. Um, and then he says, lastly, he says some things recorded uh, in scripture. There are some things recorded in scripture that are future, 
and that in later books of Scripture we see come to fruition. So you have a prophecy argument here, that we can look at the text of Scripture. We can look at the text of Scripture in, um, I don't know, the Psalms, the Messianic Psalms, or we can look at the text of Scripture in Isaiah 53, and then we can flip over to the New Testament. We could say, hey, this prophecy, what God said hundreds of years before it actually happened, is actually happening in the New Testament. Um, and so that is a mark in favor of this being of divine origin. So you have all these sub-arguments kind of under this one heading, the subject matter of Scripture, which is an internal testimony to the scripturalness of Scripture. Then secondly, you have the style and manner in which the Scriptures are written. The style and manner in which the Scriptures are written. He uses words like majesty. It bears out authority. The kind of language used, the figures, the types, the shadows, the antitypes, and so on and so forth. And all of this language that men could not invent on their own is used throughout the scriptures. Um, and so that, that stylistic argument is a mark toward its divine origin, its scripturalness. And that's another, inter that's another internal testimony. Then you have three, the penmen and writers of the Holy Scriptures, another internal testimony. These were men that were lowly educated. Um, they all lived at different times and in different places, and yet there is a consistent narrative. They were holy. They abhorred falsehood. So why would those who abhor falsehood load this thing with nothing but falsehoods? Because that's what essentially would, would have to be the case if scripture wasn't scripture. Um, these were plain, honest, hardworking, faithful men. So this is a very kind of common sense argument. Look, nobody would, no, nobody of these, these men's stature would put something like this together. Intellectual stature, um, you know, moral stature, they're not going to, they're not going to lie uh, or fill this this volume or these books full of lies. It's just not consistent with the character of the men whom God used to write the scriptures. Fourthly, the effects produced by scripture in and upon men. Now, everything we've looked at so far has been internal testimonies. This is an external testimony because it requires you to look at history, right? Um, so you have the effects produced by scripture in and upon men. Some converted from high-handed rebellion. I mean, we have biblical uh, scenarios where that happens, right? The Apostle Paul, but you also have that happening after the close of the canon that's happening in and throughout the world. You have some of the most educated men the world has ever witnessed who are converted and who are Christians. That happens post-canon as well. And it's resulted in the growth and preservation of the church against all odds, I might, I might add. Um, and then fifthly, you have miracles. Uh, there are miracles that confirm previous revelation in Scripture. So you have later miracles that confirm previous revelation in Scripture, or you have like the miracles of Jesus that confirm his ministry. And, the, and, the, and you already have to, at this point, ascend to the general reliability of the Scriptures. Right, you you already have to ascend to the general reliability of the scriptures to say, yeah, there, these are r records of miracles occurring. Unless you try to take some kind of historical, external source 
for that, but that's not what Gill's intending here. He's talking about the miracles that are recorded in Scripture, not miracles as they are confirmed by external sources. So this is an internal testimony. And then sixthly, sixthly, hatred and opposition of men and the enmity of devils toward them. It's another external testimony. So you're looking at how people have hated the word of God, not only in the scriptures themselves, because there are instances where that's that becomes painfully obvious. Um, you think about the demoniac, right, living in the tombs and 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 the the voice of the demons coming out of him, hating the, the very presence of the Lord Jesus there. Um but you have the hatred and opposition of men throughout the centuries after the close of the canon. We can look at that. And we can say, hey, there's something. If the world, if those who are generally wicked hate this book, then you that has to cause you to, to wonder, why are they hating this book? Why, do, why is this repugnant to the wicked? And it can only be repugnant to the wicked if it's good. But if it's good, it can't be a book chock full of lies. It has to be a book chock full of good, true, truth, beauty, and so on. Seventhly, you have the judgment of God on those who despise the scriptures. He talks about here um, Diocletian, and I was going to find that for us. Um, He talks about Diocletian in... Let's see, this is the seventh proof, so it should be here. Yeah, he says um, he's appealing to the Maccabees, but then he... So I'll just read the whole section. He says, The awful judgments of God on such who have despised the Scriptures and have endeavored to destroy them are no mean evidence that they are of God. That means they're, it's not bad evidence. It's pretty good evidence that the scriptures are of God. Who hereby has shown his resentment of such conduct and behavior, which might be illustrated by the instances of Antiochus Epiphanes, king of Syria, who cut to pieces the copies of the book of the law wherever he found them and burnt them and put to death all with whom they were. 1 Maccabees chapter 1, 59 and 60. This man died of a violent disorder in his bowels. His body was covered with worms. His flesh flaked off and was attended with an intolerable stench. So he's appealing to the external source of the Maccabees and what happened to Antiochus Epiphanes in order to validate the claim that Scripture is the Word of God and thus bears the authority of God. And He cites both 1st and 2nd Maccabees here. And then he says, And of Diocletian, the Roman emperor, who by an edict ordered all the sacred books to be burnt, that, if possible, he might root Christianity out of the world and once fancied fancied that he had done it. He thought, Diocletian thought that he had rooted Christianity out of the world. Diocletian persecution was one of the worst um, segments of persecution coming out of the Roman Empire. But when he found he had not accomplished his design through madness and despair in the height of his imperial glory, abdicated the empire and and retired to a private life and at last poisoned himself. So he committed suicide. This is all just the judgment of God on these people who have refused his word. And that, that, that account, I believe, comes from Josephus. 
the eighth line of evidence, main line of evidence, is because I know I, there's all sorts of sublines of evidence under these these main headings. But the eighth heading is the antiquity and continuance of scripture. So we can just look at scripture as an organism and say. This thing's been preserved for 2,000 years in a great deal of integrity. In fact, we have more manuscripts, supporting manuscripts, for Scripture than we do of any other uh, ancient document. Um, and so uh, you can just look at the preservation of Scripture and say, well, uh, there, there's no normal scenario in which, you know, such preservation to such a degree uh, I mean, we have an embarrassment of riches um, beyond anything any of the other world religions have with their holy writings. Um, and so you have to look at that and say, well, something peculiar is going on with the scriptures that's not going on with any other book, book, religious book, or anything else for that matter. And then he cites the ninth and informal proof or evidence, the agreement with heathen writers. And he says, to which may be added that the scriptures receive no small evidence of the authority of them from the testimonies of many heathen writers agreeing with them with respect to the chronology, geography, and history of them. As concerning the creation of the world, Noah's flood, the Tower of Babel, the confusion of languages, the peopling of the earth by the sons of Noah, the burning of Sodom and Gomorrah, with many other things respecting the people of Israel, their origin, laws, etc. And then he goes on to consider the next part, which is the, the perfection of the scriptures. So there's Gill looking at eight mainline uh, pieces of evidence for why we should believe that the scriptures are the scriptures. And then a ninth line of evidence that brings in pagan testimony. Um, these are all contributing lines of evidence that should cause anyone to say uh, this is the word of God. Unfortunately, because people are dead in their sins, they will not ascend to the proper outcome of these lines of inquiry. Uh, they will suppress the truth and unrighteousness. But that doesn't render these arguments invalid. And that doesn't render these arguments needless either because these are arguments that are uh that are helpful in confirming to us that this is indeed a book bearing the that has has come from god and bears therefore god's authority and you cannot so when it comes to when it comes to presupposing something um you're not uh, if you presuppose something, you're not evidencing something. Um, because if you presuppose something, you are assuming it prior, a priori, to your follow-on experiences. So your, your a posteriori experiences. And so true presuppositional, pre, true presuppositionalism would say, you hold a priori, the truth, authority, validity of the scriptures before anything else. And that would preclude you using arguments like this. And you would therefore have to accept the scriptures, and I would argue anything that claimed to be the word of God as the word of God. You would just have to accept it blindly, or you would just have to accept the 66 books of the Protestant canon 
arbitrarily. Um, and we don't do that. Now, there are more reasons for why people accept the scriptures as the word of God than these reasons given here. Um, perhaps the Lord has used a child's parents to guide him unto the faith, such that they're just raised within the Christian milieu, and then the Lord uses that to open their eyes to the truth of the scriptures. They they don't really need like a, they're not in a context of doubt. They're not in a context where these things are being denied all the time. And so, you know, maybe there's just the trustworthiness of the parents teaching, and God then uses that as a means to draw uh, the children of parents. That's what we all pray for, for our kids, I know. So, um, so there are other reasons why, why someone would accept the, the scriptures to be the word of God. Of course, the primary reason is the Holy Spirit. We're not asking whether or not the Holy Spirit is the reason or the ultimate cause or the primary cause for why someone realizes the word of God is the word of God. Obviously, it's the Holy Spirit. We see that in chapter 1, article 5 of the Second London Confession, that even though there's all these testimonies for, you know, Scripture being Scripture, yet it comes down to the Holy Spirit opening the eyes of the sinner to see and realize and ascend to the fact that these are from God, that these are the Scriptures. Um, and the Holy Spirit has to work faith in someone in order for them to make that kind of intellectual ascent to the, the trustworthiness, the authority, the, the divine origin of the Scriptures. Um, so nobody's, nobody's questioning that, but the question is, what is the means that the Holy Spirit often uses to convince someone, right? Because rarely does someone just pop into the faith, right? Like there, rarely does anyone just, you know, sitting in their dormitory or barracks room, as in my case, rarely does someone just begin to believe, right? It's usually a process. Uh, sometimes it's not, but it usually is. And so there are means that the Holy Spirit uses to draw people, some of those being arguments like these that that Gill set forth here. So with that being said, hopefully that was helpful. Gill here outlining eight arguments or lines of evidence for why we should believe the scriptures are not only the word of God, but are bear the authority of God and thus ought to be received because they are from God. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful rest of your day.